Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, bringing to you the April 2018 meeting of the Whitechapel Society 1888, with its guest speaker Diane James, the author of several books including Poisonous Lies, Edwardian Murder, The Magic Chair Murder, and her latest book, Death at Wolf's Nick, The Killing of Evelyn Foster whose 1931 murder in Northumberland made national headlines in Great Britain and has remained officially unsolved. And so without further ado, let's turn it over to Ruby Vitrino in the Chamberlain Hotel in the East End of London, introducing Diane James. The speaker who I'm going to introduce this evening is without a doubt my favorite author on true crime investigation. (laughs) (laughs) Not you. (laughs) I picked up a copy of her book, The Poison Partridge, which you can buy today if you want, in my local library, and I couldn't put it down. From then on, I was lost. So I had to read about the Croydon arsenic mystery, item moat and the Morpeth train robbery, and death at Wolf's Nick, the latter about which we'll be hearing tonight. So what shines through this author's writing, for me, is her research and her logical deduction, but also her humanity. She never loses sight of the human costs of uh, these deaths, the accusations and counter-accusations. The other thing about her that's very much interested me is the way that she has exposed the way that women have been treated by the justice system in the past. Women like Frances Coles, Alice Mackenzie, were both firstly accused of cutting their own throats when their bodies were found. Attitudes had not changed much with the horrendous death of Evelyn Foster decades later. But here to tell you all about that is Diane James. Thank you very much. Some of you might remember a TV comedy show. In fact, you can hardly miss it because I think it's still perpetually with people called Friends. But even if you didn't see it, there is a rather ditzy character called Rachel. And the man our tendency to put history into neat packages the Georgian period, the Victorian period, the Edwardian period, because those kind of neat hard lines don't allow for the sort of blurring round the edges that happens in real life. I mean, obviously, we all know that there is an overlap between periods, but I think we sometimes don't realise just how far and in what ways that overlap extends. I mean, individual people obviously overlap. All the Victorians did not conveniently die in 1901 to make way for the Edwardians. Um... Every so often, though, we do meet unexpected reminders of this. There was a little old lady standing on her doorstep, and she was literally dressed like a Victorian, and this was not some sort of historical recreation event. She was still wearing button boots and a full-length dress, which I was delighted by, because I've never seen anyone dressed like The thing is, she probably started wearing those clothes when she was in her 20s, and she just carried on like that. And who am I to cast the first stone? Because I've been having my hair cut the same way since the 1980s, and I'll probably just carry on like that forever, (coughs) or as long as I'm given. And criminal investigation, I think, gives us lots of reminders of this blurring at the edges. I work a lot with 20s and 30s crime, and particularly where older victims are concerned. 
you get the list of clothing, which often includes things like combinations, whalebone corsets, bloomers, garters, all sorts of things which the up-to-date modern woman is not wearing. And we tend to think always that all female victims will be wearing what the up-to-date modern woman is wearing. But actually, these sorts of residual traces of earlier ages are not just confined to ladies' underwear. The crime that I'm going to talk about tonight took place in 1931. But it was investigated by a Victorian chief constable. He was appointed at the end of Victoria's reign, and by the time Evelyn Foster was murdered, he'd been in post for 30 years. And during that time, his attitudes and his methods had not changed at all. The man in question was Captain Fullerton James. He was appointed chief constable of Northumberland in 1899. And unfortunately, he was only 35 at the time. So he continued in post until he was 70, which was what people did in those days. Um, like most chief constables appointed in Victoria's reign, he was actually an aristocratic, early retired army officer with absolutely no experience or training whatsoever in policing. Now, by the time he retired, the tide had turned, and we decided really that probably the best person to run a modern police force was not an aristocratic chap with a penchant for uniforms who liked a bit of occasional amateur detective work on the side. Um, I certainly don't pretend to be the first person who noticed that Fullerton James was a bit of a problem. Um, but in 2012, I was granted access to the files on the Foster case. And at that point, I had the opportunity of reading all his memos and reports and correspondence with his officers, because he actually did almost everything in writing, something which today is going to be lost to us, really. That gave me the chance to see not just the instructions, but also his thought processes about the case. Um, and I'll come on to that in a minute, but let's move to our victim. If we're categorised by the era of our birth, then Evelyn Foster was technically an Edwardian. But by the time she died in January 1931, she had cast aside that sort of Edwardian womanhood. She was a thoroughly modern young woman. She was the oldest daughter of Joseph Foster. He was literally a self-made man. Um, he built up a small business. It started as a small business. By 1931, it was a big concern. They lived in Otterburn in Northumberland. It's still today a small place. But the importance is that it lies on one of the three main routes across the border through Northumberland up into Scotland. By 31, they were running the bus company, a lorry hire service, a garage. They obviously sold petrol and repaired vehicles. And as part of this, Evelyn had her own hire car. She actually owned the car and she ran it under the umbrella of the family, but actually as her own concern. Um, she wasn't married, and like most unmarried women of the time, she still lived with her mother and with her other unmarried relatives. But she was actually quite independent, and she was also quite well off. She had sufficient money in the bank when she died that she could actually have bought a house in the village outright if she'd chosen to do so. This is Evelyn pictured with one of the cars that she owned. You can probably see that she's actually quite tiny. She was only just over five foot. She's also very sensibly dressed because it gets very cold in Northampton, for those who don't know it. Um, she was said to have been an extremely experienced driver. She was very good. A lot of the roads then were unmade. She was used to doing long journeys and used to difficult terrain. On the evening of the 6th of January 1931, she left Otterburn at about 25 to 7 to drive three of her regular passengers north. 
to outlying farms above the next village north, which is Rochester. It was a regular run. She knew her passengers. They knew her. According to them, everything was perfectly normal. She dropped them all off in the usual way. And she then, according to the story that she told later, as she was driving back south again, was flagged down by a vehicle here at Elisha, Elisha Road Ends. If you look at this picture, what you can see is that the main road, which was nothing like as wide in 1931, then it was just wide enough for two cars to pass, even though it was a main road. Where it goes around that bend there, it's going down to Newcastle. But you can see over at the side here, it's actually up. My book of those doctors doesn't seem to be working. Over at the side, it turns off, and that's the, where the rain road goes to Hexham and Darlington. No habitation except a farm, which is actually a lot further off the road than it appears from this particular photograph. According to Evelyn, as she approached the junction, it was parked car, they flagged her down, and she said that a man got out of the car and asked, could she give him a lift down to Otterburn, where he could catch a bus to Newcastle? Evelyn immediately told him, obviously she knew all about the times of the buses, as her father owned the bus company, that he'd actually missed the last bus because it left at half past six. She told him that the next place now where he would get a bus would be Pontyland. She said she was quite happy to give him a lift for nothing to Otterburn, but that if he wanted to be taken to Pontyland, it would be a fair paying proposition. The man said he would give it a try. He would go down and give him a lift for free in Otterburn, and if not, he would take up her offer of being a fair. So they get into the car, the other car turns off towards Hexham and Evelyn drives down to Otterburn. And on the way down, it's only a couple of minutes by car, they agreed that she would fill up with petrol and he in the meantime would walk down to the Percy Arms, it was then the only purple hostel of any kind in the village, and see if he could get a lift for free. Evelyn would have known very well that his chances of getting a lift all the way to Newcastle at that time of night on a winter's evening in the Percy Arms were pretty well nil. So she went into the house, popped her head round the door, told her parents that she'd actually unexpectedly picked up this fare, that she was therefore going back out again. She filled up the car and, as far as we know, she went to pick him up. The village street is actually really short. We're standing in the churchyard. Those sheds that you can see in the centre there those were actually part of Foster's garage and the petrol pumps stood just in front of them. The chimneys over here are actually the chimneys of the house where Evelyn lived. And if we turn and face the other way, that's literally the other end of the village. That sign there is the Percy Arms. So you can see we're talking about a tiny distance. But because of the fact that the village street is actually on a little bend, it's only if you stand here in the churchyard that you can see all the way down. So once these two people are out of sight of each other, she can't see when he's going in the purple can't see what she's doing either. Evelyn had told her parents where she was going. She set off from home and she didn't come back. Family started to get anxious. Time went on. In the end, they decided they would wait until the last bus came back from Newcastle. That bus would, of course, have been taking exactly the same route that Evelyn was taking. And therefore, if her car had broken down, the bus crew would see her and pick her up. The last bus service from Newcastle that night was due to reach Otterburn at half past ten. By the time they got to within about five or six miles of Otterburn, there weren't actually any passengers left on the bus that night, so it was just the driver and the conductor, who was only 15, who started them working early in those days. As they approached Wolf's Nick, therefore, 
the bus was empty except for the two of them. This is Wolf's Nick. It's literally a little nick in the hills. We're heading towards Otterburn, but you can see that you can't see anything before you get here. The reason it's called Wolf's Nick, by the way, is that along this little low ridge, just off site here, is just a little edifice which is called Wolf's Plan. So hence, we get Wolf's Nick. And this is after we've crested the rise, and as you can see, the road bears right round to the left quite sharply, and there's a big view of open moorland ahead. And that night, the two men could see that there was something burning at the side of the road. They slowed the car up, they, they slowed their bus up, sorry, and realised that it was actually a car. They got down from the bus, they walked across to the car, and it was only when they got to it that they realised it was actually Evelyn's car. And to their horror, they found that she was lying on the ground a few yards from the car, obviously very badly burnt and clearly in desperate state. Her first words to them were, that awful man. And this is the car pictured from the road the next day. Rather a deceptive shot again, because the car's actually rather further away from the road than it appears to be on this particular shot. Because it left tracks across the moorland, the police were able to map exactly where it had come off the road and where it had gone to. We're back where we were, just on the other side of Walsnick. And if you can see, there was a modern road sign there. It wasn't there in 31. And the car had come off just by that. So basically, if the car was going, carrying on in a straight line, that's where it would have gone. And it then went down a four-foot embankment. This is the diagram that was produced by the police at the time. No indication, of course, of the bend in the road. The car comes down. It's going in a straight line on a downhill course. It then reaches this little burn here. And at that point, it would appear that the wheels get stuck in the mud and that changes the steering block. So it then comes round in a bend like this. And now, of course, the burn's in the bottom of the dip. It's coming back uphill, so presumably slowing up. And it ends up with its tyres coming to rest in a little ditch, which is basically the first obstruction, really, serious obstruction, that it meets. The fire had clearly begun in the compartment of the car, the driver or passenger area. You can tell particularly by looking at how the tyres at the back are completely destroyed. The tyres at the front are actually untouched and the engine is also relatively untouched. So clearly this is not some sort of accidental fire where something's gone wrong in the engine. This is a fire which has been deliberately set. It's a deliberate act. The bus driver, Seth Johnson, carried Evelyn across to his bus and he then drove as fast as he dared back to Otterburn. Today, of course, we think, why didn't he ring the emergency services? Well, first of all, of course, they haven't got a phone. But secondly, the emergency services did not actually exist in 1931 in the way that they do now. So you didn't ring for an ambulance. You took people back home. Um, they got home. Evelyn, of course, the police were then summoned. Medical assistance was then summoned as well. And Evelyn survived for a few hours before she lapsed into unconsciousness and then died. The story she told seemed in some ways quite strange. She said that she'd picked the man up as they'd agreed on the bridge outside the Percy Arms. She'd then driven the car as far south as Belsey, which is quite a distance down the road. Um, up until then, everything had seemed perfectly normal. When they got to Belsey, the man turned on her. He hit her. He forced her, she said, to turn the car around and to drive back towards Nick, a distance of roughly 10 miles from Belsey. 
There, he had assaulted her. He'd thrown something over her, but he was not clear what. He'd set light to her and sent the car off the road. She had been partly unconscious, she thought. She'd come to, she managed to struggle out of the car, struggle out of her coat, and roll about on the floor until the flames went out. Clearly, this is not someone who was intended to survive that attack, and because her burns were so severe that she died eight hours later. A major police investigation was launched immediately, but within the first 48 hours, the official police line was that Evelyn's story was questionable. Perhaps she had lied. One theory was that she'd actually attempted to set fire to the car by wearing insurance fraud and that she'd all gone horribly wrong, she'd set fire to herself and to try and cover up for this, she'd made up the story of the man. Another suggestion was that she was in some way mentally unbalanced, that she'd made it all up to draw attention to herself, but again, it had all gone horribly wrong and much further than she thought. But I can see already people are shaking their heads. Why on earth would the police have disbelieved her? Well, first of all, Evelyn said she'd been interfered with. Um, in 1931, for many years afterwards, that was a sort of casual euphemism for some kind of sexual assault. Um, secondly, the, um, the police found no evidence of sexual assault. There was a post-mortem and there was no evidence of sexual assault. Secondly, although the police interviewed dozens of people, both residents of Otterburn and people who lived further up and further down her route, they even made two appeals on the radio and appeals in the national press. The driver of this car, said to have dropped this man off at Elisha, in the middle of nowhere apparently, was never traced. Thirdly, of course, they were questioning people who'd been out about in the village, people who'd been drinking in the pub, about this man. Had he come in asked for a lift? No, he hadn't. There were people apparently out and about in the village. Nobody had seen him. Finally, there's an obvious question mark about how a man could have escaped from such an isolated spot. Waltzniff really is, literally miles from anywhere. Um, when the case was dramatised, I'm sure many of you will remember In Suspicious Circumstances, or a splendid series around the beginning of the 90s, and this case was actually titled The Man Who Melted Away, which I think was a very, very appropriate title. The coroner's inquest was held here in the Memorial Hall in Otterburn. All the witnesses who were called appeared to back up the idea that this mysterious man simply couldn't have existed. And Professor Stuart MacDonald, who carried out the post-mortem, insisted that Evelyn's injuries were not consistent with a sexual attack. In spite of this, the coroner's jury, all of them local men, all of them had known Evelyn all her life, brought in a verdict of willful murder by person or persons unknown. Now, the investigation had been personally handled by Chief Constable in Northumberland, and he made no secret of his annoyance at this verdict. The national press also had quite a go at the jury and said that this was a ridiculous verdict which went completely in the face of the evidence. And I would have to say that was absolutely fair comment. This was a verdict which was not supported by the evidence given at the inquest at all. In 2006, of course, the 75-year rule meant the coroner's inquest was open. And when you study those statements at the inquest, it's easy to see why people were a bit bemused, because there certainly doesn't appear to be anything very much in there at all that supports Evelyn's story. But was the evidence at the inquest the whole story? For me, the holy grail were the files compiled by the police at the time. 
And in 2012, after a certain amount of negotiation, I was given access to these files. It was, for me, the research opportunity of a lifetime um, and a great privilege, and I'll be eternally grateful to the Northumbria Police for allowing me to have a look at them. Nobody else had actually been able to read through all this paperwork in its entirety since the boxes had been closed in the 1930s. So, would they hold anything more? Well, it was obvious at first glance did. There'd been a mere dozen or so uh, witnesses called at the inquest, but in fact the police had taken more than a hundred witness statements from people who'd been out and about on that particular night. Um, all of them in some way associated with Evelyn's route or alleged route on the 6th of January. And it very quickly became obvious to me that instead of keeping the coroner properly informed, the police are supposed to of course work closely with the coroner in a case like this, the chief constable had been cherry-picking statements and keeping the coroner largely in the dark about the evidence that he got. He was very carefully creating a picture of events which fitted his own theory. Now, local people who'd been interviewed by the police knew perfectly well that not everybody with something to say or who thought they'd got something to say had been called to appear at the inquest. Unfortunately, Opinion generally, and local opinion as well, became heavily influenced by various stories attributed to various people in newspapers at the time. I now had the opportunity of comparing what was being said in the papers at the time with what people were actually telling the police. And I found that nearly all the stories that had found their way into the papers had been twisted or sensationalised in some way. Um, for example, the papers reported that a local woman called Mary Ferry had actually had an encounter with a mysterious strange man near the Percy Arms, which of course was exactly where Evelyn was going to pick this man up. And another village of George Sinclair had seen this same strange man lurking near the post office, which is actually just a little bit to the right of our shop, just a few buildings further down. Now, in later years, both these stories were said to have been suppressed by the Chief Constable. Um, but like many of the stories that found their way into the papers, Although both of them have got a grain of truth, um, in as much that both Miss Ferry and Mrs Sinclair had both separately seen somebody, um, what they said was totally distorted by the papers. And the records actually show that the police succeeded in identifying and eliminating both of these men. Miss Ferry's mystery man was actually a painting decorator called Henry Park, who was waiting for a bus, and his bus had actually arrived and taken him out of the village well before the mystery man would actually have been there. Um, Mr Sinclair's mystery man was actually a local man called John Murray. What the papers didn't report, perhaps understandably, was that Mr Sinclair, owing to a serious accident a few years before, had extremely defective eyesight, and he therefore had not recognised John Murray, although John Murray fortunately had recognised Mr Sinclair. And again, the time was also wrong. Um, it was a time when Evelyn would actually not have been with the mystery man in the village. Perhaps far more dam damaging than these sort of fairy stories about mystery men in the village were rumours that started to circulate about the supposed involvement of the lady who lived here at Trefend Hall. This was Mrs Charlotte Clark. A theory developed that it was Mrs Clark who had dropped the man off at Elisha and that she had then kept quiet, even though she knew the identity of Evelyn's killer. Mrs Clark's home, Trefendal Hall, stood on the Hexham Road, which is about a mile or so above Otterburn. Um, the police files, again, they investigated these claims because they were aware of the gossip that started to circulate about Mrs Clark. 
and it seems to have originated in a fairly silly piece of gossip. Mrs. Clark had previously fallen out with the Fosters about the hire of a lorry for transporting cattle. So that in itself created this sort of bit of frisson between the two families. Um, Mrs. Clark, as one of her farmhands, had moved on. And the story running around the village was that he had been sacked for telling people that Mrs. Clark had been out in the early evening of the night of the murder. Now, that fitted rather neatly with the idea then current that the car that had dropped the man off Delisher had not gone very far, that it had turned off into one of the properties on Hexham Road. And the reason that this story got round was that two teenagers claimed that they had cycled all the way from West Woodburn all the way up to Ellisher and beyond, and that they had not met a single vehicle. QED, logically, therefore, the car had to have turned off. Now, unfortunately, the story of these teenage boys is discredited by lots of other witnesses who were genuinely out and about that night. But these two lads managed to have their five minutes of fame, they got their story into the newspapers, and of course their story was known about, whereas other, perhaps more genuine witnesses, were not. The local rumour of course, put two and two together and decided the boys had not seen a car, therefore the car had turned off, the farmhand had seen that Mrs Clark was out, Mrs Clark must be involved. And as the years went by, this story got embroidered further and further. There were even suggestions that Mrs Clark had gone and picked the murderer up on the moor afterwards. It doesn't take much working out as to why that would be just an absolutely daft idea. No logic or basis, in fact, to any of this. The Fosters actually reported these rumours to the police. The police investigated and found that Mrs Clark got a cast-iron alibi for the night of the murder. She had never been out at all that night. And ironically, one of the people who was able to provide that alibi was the farmhand who supposedly had been going around telling people that she'd been out. Um, he made a statement to the police confirming that he had not been dismissed. He'd actually left to go to a better job at another village a few miles away. He'd also told the police that various people had approached him and asked him whether it was true that he was saying that Mrs. Clark had been out all night. And he'd assured all of them that he'd never said anything of the kind. But the trouble is, you can't scotch a good story, can you? So although he was saying he hadn't said it, people still continued for many years to say that he had. And even today, um, there will be people who will tell you that really somebody knew something and knew that Mrs. Clark was involved. So from this, you're going to realise that even village gossip was actually being actively investigated. But from the beginning, the investigation team were under serious disadvantages. Um, this is a contemporary photograph which shows how the weather worsened in the immediate aftermath of the killing. And when I tell you that the vast majority of policemen in Northumberland did not actually have motorised transport at the time, the only police car was the Chief Constable's personal motor vehicle um, in Northumberland at this period. So you can see that they were rather up against it. Their biggest problem, though, was the man leading the investigation. By 1931, Captain Bulletin Jones was 68 years old. His ideas were completely outdated, and it's quite obvious he had no idea how to run a major serious criminal investigation. The Northumberland Police Force covered one of the largest rural areas in the country. They had no motor cars. Some of the scattered village policemen were not even on the telephone. On the night of the murder, some of the policemen in villages quite nearby 
only found out something had happened on their patch because another officer came and physically knocked at their door, knocked them up. Worse still, Northumberland still had no specialist CID. So in order to put together a team to handle the foster inquiry, Fullerton James took a handful of other officers off patrolling duties and then he borrowed two CID men. It's a bit like the premiership now where you could just have people on loan from other teams. Um, he borrowed two very junior CID men, a constable and a sergeant from Newcastle and Tyne City Police, which was a separate force. He then ran the show himself, taking pretty well absolutely no notice of anything that the detective officers from Newcastle suggested. The junior officers um, were actually a group of very dedicated men. From the paperwork, it emerges that they were putting in more than 12-hour days. On average, they were working 14-hour days, mostly for eight or nine days at a stretch before they had any time at all. They really were diligent and dedicated, but they were just a small handful of people. The resources were completely inadequate, and the worst problem was that they were at the beck and call of a man utterly unfit to be running a murder investigation. This is some of these officers that after the attack measuring the distances in order to prepare that diagram that we looked at earlier. The inquiry team was actually based in Otterburn, but the inquiry was being run by Captain Fullerton James from his headquarters in Morpeth, which is about 25 miles away. Even today, the journey between Otterburn and Morpeth takes between 40 and 45 minutes by car, and the road conditions were considerably less favourable in January 1931. Fullerton James demanded that every document, not just witness statements, but also all the anonymous letters from the lunatic fringe, and of course there are always plenty of those in any investigation, had to be retyped in triplicate and taken every day by a policeman on a motorcycle from Otterburn to his headquarters in Northumberland. Fullerton James would then read this information and he would then send back a series of questions for Inspector Russell in Otterburn to answer. This was obviously a waste of valuable time. Instead of leading or even assisting, the chief constable was actually wasting time. He was tying up one officer as a full-time typist and another as a virtually full-time courier. And most of the time, Inspector Russell only had a six-man team. You do the maths. So a lot of the time was just spent pandering really to the chief constable. And the whole operation very quickly degenerated into an absolute mass of paperwork. They were generating a huge amount of material and throughout those files it was quite common to find eight or nine copies of the same document scattered in random order throughout the paperwork. The notes and memos and reports that Fullerton James left behind reveal him to be incompetent, autocratic and arrogant. If that wasn't bad enough, he seems to have taken an immediate and completely irrational dislike to the victim, a woman he had never met in life. He took the line that everything she said about anything should be actually disbelieved unless there was firm evidence to back it up. The root of the problem, I suspect, is that being an upper-class Victorian man with extremely traditional attitudes towards women, he didn't really like the look of Evelyn, who was an independent young woman who ran her own business, when really she should have been at home making babies and cooking her husband's tea. Um, Fullerton Jones made it quite clear that he thought it both strange and completely inappropriate that she was in the habit of, and I quote, transporting complete strangers over long distances in her motor car, which is of course what taxi drivers do all the time. Shortening of skirts and painting of faces, activities once traditionally the preserve of only one particular type of working girl, 
were still widely perceived as signs of declining moral standards in the 20s. And there was still an unspoken subtext among many people that men could not be expected to practice self-control. If women deliberately put such temptation in their way, a woman who became the victim of sexual assault had actually brought this entirely on herself. One of the big problems in this period as well is that unmarried women had received no kind of sexual instruction at all. They were supposed to remain in blissful ignorance of sexual matters until their wedding night. So even the ability to explain what someone had done to them was often lacking in victims. Um, people who made allegations about sexual harassment ran the risk of it being their own fault, ran the risk of being dismissed as nasty-minded. There was also no anonymity for victims at this time either. So a girl was literally ruined. And there is no doubt in my mind that sex attacks were underreported at this time. Um, it's even possible to speculate that if this man had attacked Evelyn and then left her in one piece to drive home, we might never have known anything about this case at all. She might have tried to cover it up or her family might have done. A conventional elderly man like Captain Fullerton James viewed an unmarried 28-year-old woman with considerable suspicion. At the inquest, it was even implied that Evelyn was perhaps suffering from some kind of hysterical disorder, um, which was supposed to afflict women who lived, and I quote again, abnormal spinster lives. Evelyn alleged that she had been interfered with. The post-mortem found no evidence of sexual assault, but this was arguably not surprising because of the hideous nature of the burns that Evelyn had suffered in that area of her body. Here, of course, another big problem, which was the handover from our Victorian forebears. Evelyn probably didn't have the knowledge to describe what had been done to her. Um, in the 20s and 30s, even in formal court cases, the word rape was often not used. Euphemisms like ravaged or outraged, I particularly like that one, it just sounds as though the woman was made very cross, um, were, which she probably was, but that's not what we want, what we mean, is it really? Um, these sorts of euphemisms were routinely employed. Respectable young women didn't even know what those things meant. And there are, of course, plenty of ways of sexually assaulting someone which would not, in fact, have left sufficient evidence after Evelyn had been burned. But to Fullerton James, Evelyn had made a specific allegation. He decided that she claimed she had been raped, that the post-mortem proved she hadn't been, that she was therefore a nasty-minded young woman who had made the dirtiest possible kind of suggestion, perhaps as an attention-seeking device, perhaps as some sort of part of a failed insurance claim. And he took about 48 hours to come to that conclusion. And having come to that conclusion, he developed an almost obsessive loathing of Evelyn Foster and seemed determined to ignore any clue that he might be wrong. Unfortunately, he wasn't the only Victorian at the centre of the inquiry. This photograph was taken in 1918, and this is Evelyn on the right, and this is her mother in the middle, Margaret Foster. You can see that the picture is of absolute modesty and propriety written all over it. Evelyn's mother was present while she was being interviewed by the police. And when Evelyn was asked to describe what had taken place and reluctantly admitted that the man had taken advantage of her, as she put it, yet another euphemism for sexual assault of some kind, Margaret Foster, her mother, actually cried out and seemed to literally tear at her hair. 
Now, that sort of hysterical reaction to the news that her daughter had been ruined, obviously yet another factor which is going to prove detrimental in interviewing this girl and getting to the bottom of what's happened to her. One of the problems with any kind of evidence um, is it's often open to more than one interpretation. A lot of the key points in Evelyn's story were completely unsubstantiated. Now, to the Chief Constable, that indicated that they were untrue. Nothing exists to prove that what she said is true, and therefore what she said must be false. But it's perfectly clear, um, and this was actually pointed out by Constable John Eckford, who sort of became my policeman hero during the course of this investigation. He was one of the two Newcastle CID officers. He pointed out that you could read the evidence the opposite way. They had discovered nothing which disproved Evelyn's story. Today, um, this evening, I walked into the hotel via the front door. No one saw me do it. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means there wasn't anybody in the right place at the right time. But presumably, Fullerton James would think that straight away, it was open to suspicion I might not be telling the truth. So what we can see from these reports and memos is that while the team doing the spade work in Otterburn are pulling in one direction, the Chief Constable is steadfastly pulling in the other. So when a few days into the inquiry, the local police actually found a witness who had seen a car similar in appearance to Evelyn's turning round in Belfay, exactly where Evelyn said her car had turned round, they tagged the statement, this is it, the original Bessie MacDonald, Belsay, heard car turn. Obviously, one of the officers thinks that's a really important statement. But Fullerton James decided which statements were going to be passed to the coroner, and he didn't include this one. Only a select few were passed to the coroner. And therefore, the Foster family had the hideous experience of sitting through an inquest when not only had they lost their daughter, sister, in particularly hideous circumstances, they now had to sit and listen while it's insinuated that she was a liar and a fantasist as well. Attention to detail is the foundation of good detective work, wise words. When running a major investigation, you don't just need to accumulate information, you also need to analyse it and find out what that raw data is actually telling you. Sadly, for the junior officers involved, they were completely on the run collecting the information. They were never given the opportunity to sit and analyse it all properly. Um, Fullerton James didn't allow them time for that because he felt he was the person who was running the show. He was the guy who was going to work out what it all meant. He was trying to do that, but the trouble is it wasn't an open-minded exercise because he was focusing on what supported his own idea and basically ignoring anything that didn't. So he ignored Bessie MacDonald, who described how she'd seen this car which matched Evelyn's turning around in Belsay, but he set a lot of store by a couple of other witnesses who seemed able to disprove Evelyn's story about picking up the stranger at Elisha Road Ends. These two witnesses were workmen, Albert Beach and John Oliver, and they were walking along the Hexham Road, and we were actually standing on the Hexham Road where their starting point was, and they're going to walk round here off screen, across this bridge, and up there. That is the main road that we looked at earlier. Do you remember the farm that's off the road? That was it, we were looking at it. This is Elisha Road Ends. This is the junction, and I deliberately took this with a car coming along the road. So you can see very clearly if two vehicles were parked there while you were walking along this road, you would see them. And what Mr. Beach and Mr. Oliver said was that they didn't. There weren't two cars parked there all the time they were walking along the road. Now, this is taken just a bit further along their route. You, you see, remember the bridge? There it is. We're much nearer now. We're going down the road. And again, you can see very clearly 
here is the main road at the top, and I want you particularly to notice these nice big tall road signs here. They weren't there in 1931, but they're important to us. And this is why. We're now standing on the bridge. You can't even see the road signs. The angle of the road is such that by the time you get down to the bridge, the main road is completely invisible. There could be a dozen cars parked up there and all kinds of transactions going on and you wouldn't know. Even after dark, you wouldn't have seen the loom of the lights because the road is basically so far beyond, down below the horizon. It's always important to go and look at the scene, isn't it, to test what people could or could not actually have seen. So I had that opportunity, which was denied to my friend, I've from PC John Eckford and Sergeant Archie Robson and all the others involved in that investigation, because when I'd actually made notes of all the information, I was actually able to have as long as I liked to go through it. And I spent days pouring over large-scale diagrams of the roads along which Evelyn travelled. I plotted the position of every single witness from whom the police had acquired testimony and cross-referenced everyone who said they had seen anyone or anything else at all. Um, as well as a great exercise in logical deduction, like this sort of massive 3D puzzle, um, it's also a fantastic archive of local history. Basically, I know how almost everybody in Otterburn spent their evening that night. It's this amazing microcosm of rural life in 1931. But back to the deductions. Instead of taking statements of face value, I tested the recollections and, crucially, the timings that people had provided. Witnesses are traditionally very, very weak on time. Unless you've got a particular reason for noticing the time, the 6.30 train had just come in, the television programme had just started, our guesstimates are often a long way out. And it proved to be the case with several very important witnesses that night. Now, bizarrely, although we've had 30 years' experience of police investigations, it seems that Captain Fullerton-Jones had never learned this simple truth at all. So when a witness, often pressed by the police to guess what time something happened, said it occurred at approximately 7 o'clock, he assumed that would be correct to within a minute or two. And he never bothered to cross-reference it with any timings that had been provided by anybody else. When I tested the recollections of one witness against another, I soon found some people's estimates were up to 30 minutes out. One lady was 45 minutes out. Now, you might think that's rather a bold claim, but basically, this is how it works. If Smith and Jones both say they passed the post office at 7 o'clock, but they didn't see each other, then one or both of them has to be wrong about the time, yeah? If MacDonald and Smith saw each other passing the post office, they must have been passing at the same time. If MacDonald left the village on the 6.50 bus very soon after seeing Smith, then Smith must have passed the post office between 6.45 and 6.50. And from that, once you've established one time, you can actually start building and establishing many, many others. I didn't just apply the process to people on foot in the village, but also the infinitely more difficult job of piecing together vehicle movements. People that night were travelling by bus, car, lorry, bicycle, and even a horse-drawn cart. I spent days and days piecing together all the movements of these people. I used sheets of wallpaper to represent the various sections of the road. Everybody had their own little card, and I moved all the cards in five and ten minute intervals. 
It was a process that involved checking and double-checking calculations to work out how long it took people to get from A to B on foot or on their bicycle or whatever, so that you could actually work out the average speed. And from that, you know through where they are on the road at any given point. I particularly wanted to do it as a paper exercise, not just because I'm basically not literate with computers, but also because I wanted to do it with the materials that would have been available in 1931. Would it have been possible for them to do this exercise? And it would. It would have been possible. When I finally had drawn all this up, it threw up several previously disregarded statements which actually supported Evelyn's story in various main ways and one key witness who had been completely overlooked but might actually have been the man who saw the murder that night because piecing it together, I started actually at one stage doubting whether Evelyn's story could be true. At the end of it, I have no doubt whatsoever that she was telling the truth and I believe that one man actually did see the murderer that night. Evelyn had described her assailant as a man wearing a smart overcoat and a bowler hat. She said he was about five foot six to five foot eight tall. She estimated that by the height of her brother. The police received, of course, dozens of sightings of men in bowler hats. They were able to rule out the people in Penzance straight away. Um, unfortunately, bowler hats were one of the most commonly worn items of headgear in the country at the time. So how do you decide which of these hundreds of sightings was the man who murdered Evelyn. Well, the chief constable eventually dismissed all of them because he decided she hadn't been murdered at all. One of the things he never considered at all was how the man would have made his escape. He was on foot. So you need to work out how somebody travelling at an average speed on foot, where he's going to get to, taking all the various routes. And from this, one witness did emerge with very compelling testimony. A man called George Jackson, he was walking home from a neighbour's house at a little out-of-the-way place called Bowling West Houses, and he encountered walking along a road running across in front of him. He was coming to a crossroads. He encountered a stranger in a smart overcoat, wearing a bowler hat and walking briskly down the road. This was, an even today, it's an extremely... Uh, unfrequented spot, very unusual to see a stranger there, also unusually in the context of the time, the man made no attempt to say good evening, touch his hat or acknowledge George Jackson in any way, he put his head down and he walked straight on. Um, piecing this together, this witness was exactly where he would have been if he'd left Wolf's Nick after setting fire to the car. George Jackson would actually have seen him before the human cry went up. He reported this to the police less than 24 hours after Evelyn's death, but like so many pieces of jigsaw, his testimony was filed away and it was lost for the next 80 years. So, who was the man in the bowler hat? Well, believe it or not, there's actually a credible suspect named on the file. I'm not going to spoil it by telling you too much about him, because I know some of you bought the book and there's nothing worse than a spoiler, is there? Um, but for those who are not going to read the book, why was this man not brought to justice? Like every element in the story, the truth's a bit complicated. But in a nutshell, the murder took place in January 1931. The inquest was convened, first of all, to establish proof of identity. It was then res resumed in February. By this time, Fullerton James confidently expected the coroner's jury to bring in suicide or misadventure, at which point he could close the file. End of story. 
And even before the inquest, he'd already started to do that. He'd scaled down the investigation. However, the verdict of murder was very annoying because publicly he could not now close the inquiry because it was still an open case. In private, however, that's exactly what he was doing. The detectives were disbanded, the team was gone. A year later, a new witness came forward, a man in Scotland who was actually himself an ex-policeman, who had been introduced to someone within a few days of Evelyn's murder, and this person had worried him. He'd said things which troubled him. But this new guy, his name was George Maxwell, he felt he hadn't got enough to, to take to the police. You can't just go and say, well, you know, he said a few odd things, can you really? But then, a year later, Maxwell discovered that this young man had now been charged with a separate case of sexual assault in Scotland, and he was on remand awaiting trial. Now, at this point, we need to consider the position, if you like the corner almost, that Fullerton James has painted himself into. Right from the outset, he's made it clear that he doesn't believe Evelyn Foster. Things have become so heated that in the aftermath of the inquest, Evelyn's father and mother had actually filed an official complaint about the way he'd handled the case. This didn't go anywhere because it had to be dealt with by the watch committee and that was full of Fullerton James's friends and cronies, basically. So the inquiry was, was just dismissed. But even so... Just having that complaint, the, the publicity and so on, was a severe embarrassment to a man who had got the King's Police Medal for long service, basically only because he'd been in post a very long time. The other thing was that he was starting to get paranoid about the criticism. Um, there were some, some quite odd memos in the end. You actually sort of think, this, this guy is, well, he's maybe losing the plot of it. If we're being charitable as well, we've got to assume that Fullerton Jones was convinced he was right and the English jury were wrong. So obviously he's not going to give much credence to this supposed new suspect. But we've also got to remember that he is within a couple of years of retirement. He's got an unblemished record. Well, how's it going to play with the public or indeed the Home Office if the evidence now comes to light to prove that Evelyn Foster was murdered? After all, the press would have had him for breakfast. So what did he do? Well, he certainly didn't ask if he could send officers to interview this man. He did make some desultory inquiries, which demonstrated that the man could, in fact, have been in the Osborne area at the time of Evelyn's murder. So he then asked his opposite numbers over the border to go and make inquiries with the suspect's family to see if they could remember anything about where he was at the period. And at this point, there was what in, in technical police terms is known as a monumental cock-up, because the suspect was part of a very large extended family who had a very common surname. The officers tasked with interviewing the relatives went to the wrong branch of the family, who, not surprisingly, didn't give very helpful information at all. When these responses came back and landed back on Fullerton James's desk, bear in mind none of the other officers involved in this case are now looking at any of this information because they've all been sent back to other duties. Did Fullerton James notice, as I immediately did, that the police had been and interviewed the wrong people? Well, maybe he did and maybe he didn't. With absolutely nothing to hand that ruled out this new suspect, Fullerton James then notes no further action to be taken until we find out the outcome on the present charges. The man was found guilty and he was sent to prison for four years. This is reported back on the file without comment. The papers were closed shortly afterwards. Fullerton James retired with great fanfare shortly after that and he moved south to live in Windsor where he lived to the ripe old age of 91. 
the more I learned of his actions and his character, to be honest, the more I came to despise the man. Um, I felt really sorry, not just for the victim and for her family, but for other people who got caught up in this mess. The officers who worked so conscientiously, but were then hugely criticised locally for years afterwards because the investigation was unwalled. Um, Mrs. Clark, the lady who lived up at Trefendall, who even in her own lifetime had all sorts of silly things said about her, and it became worse, in fact, after Jonathan Goodman wrote a book about the case, where he calls her Mrs. X, but really a bright child of six could work out who he was talking about. Um, but in some ways, this talk is not about the crime itself, perhaps, because you can read about that. It, it's also about digging out the truth. A lot has been written about this case in the past, and when you actually compare what's been written to what is actually available on file, you realise that a lot of it was based on Chinese whispers and local gossip and fairy stories published in the newspapers. Um, that's not because people never tell lies when they talk to the police, but undoubtedly people remember things more accurately at the time than they do if you go and interview them 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or worse still, 50 years later. It's said that we live in an age of information technology. Um, I looked this up, it's defined as the study or use of systems, especially computers or telecommunications, for storing, retrieving and sending information. The key point here though is that storing, retrieving and sending information that isn't correct in the first place isn't of any help to any of us. These days the internet does put an amazing amount of information at our fingertips. But surveys suggest that a troubling proportion of people never look any further than that and that they believe the way to find out the truth about anything is to just look on the internet. An even larger proportion of people don't know the difference between first and primary and secondary sources. And a great many users of internet forums are posting entirely spurious information often derived from completely unreliable sources. And they also think it's fair game to just randomly finger a suspect without any firm evidence of their involvement. Completely false rumours about Charlotte Clark went around the village soon after Evelyn Foster died. They were entirely without foundation, but they persisted to her death. And even today, there are people in Otterburn who tell you, well, somebody really did know it was her. And it's kind of, no, they can't actually, but there we are. Um, I'm going to just leave you with a few points to consider. And you might want to come back at me about this later on. But our fascination with historical crime means that we often encounter situations in which people who are long dead suddenly come into the frame. You can't lie about the dead, but you can still occasion great distress to their children and their grandchildren and family members. How sure should we be before we throw another name into the mix? And this is a question I've had to ask myself in connection with this case and with others that I've looked at and written about. And here's another one. The one up there, really. At the end of the day, an awful lot of people might say, does this really matter now? Evelyn Foster has been dead for more than 80 years. All her closest immediate family are also dead. There is now no living relative who knew Evelyn Foster in life. The same applies to the suspect who I name in my book. So does it matter? I think it does. Not just because there is something to be said for getting belated justice for people, for rescuing long tarnished reputations perhaps, for correcting historical misconceptions, but also because we can learn from the past. We can learn 
huge amount about the way ordinary people lived and what they did, what they thought was acceptable and what was not, just by reading archival materials like this. We can see that in days of yore, as Rachel from Friends would have it, periods really did blur into one another. And that the attitudes and methods that we're expecting to be consistent with a particular year, a particular period, may not actually be the attitudes or the methods which were employed by somebody whose formative experiences belonged to a different era. And I think as well that cases like this remind us of the importance of keeping an open mind, of not being prejudiced consciously or unconsciously by a person's gender, lifestyle or background, prejudice which clearly did affect the investigation of this case. And of course, I come back to the huge importance of understanding the difference between real evidence and second-hand stories. So for me, yes, the truth does matter, however long after the event. And as various people at Mirror Books came in contact with the case, with the book, a sort of bandwagon developed, and I think all of us felt we wanted to obtain some kind of belated justice for Evelyn Foster. As it happened, all but one of us were women, but I think that's coincidental. I think it was a shared feeling by everybody. And I hope that my book does that. I leave it to those who want to read it to make up their minds and decide. Thank you very much. Just before we go into the questions, uh, I know there are a couple, about four people who were here last time, first meeting, and they've come back. Are you mad? How are you playing at? Any new members tonight at all? Swines. It's good to see Phil. Phil Hutchinson here. I haven't seen you for a while, Phil. How's everybody to see you? Yeah. Aren't you going to hang him? Was that good? No. <laughs> Thanks for that. Okay, who's got the first question? I bet it's Lindsay. Oh, no. Right. Wonderful talk, Diane. Thank you very, very much. Um, how long... Can I ask you a few personal questions? Yep. Um, well, not that personal. <laughs> not, not how much um, you <laughs> How long have you been writing? Have you always been a writer? Um, I was about to say, have you ever had a proper job? But you know what I mean. You know what I mean. So can we hear something about you? Um, yes, I've always been writing. I can't remember when I couldn't read, and I can certainly remember writing little stories even when I was about five. I don't think they were very good. Um, they haven't survived for posterity. But I wasn't actually published until about ten years ago. My first book was that was accepted was Edwardian Murder, um, and I've averaged a book a year since then, although they tend, with the vagaries of publishing schedules, I sort of have two out and then nothing the next year and then two out. Um, which isn't my choice, but that's just the way it works out. Have I ever had a proper job? I've had loads of different jobs. Um, I've worked as a barmaid. Um, my low point was being turned down as a washer-upper. I've waited tables. Um, I spent four and a half very unhappy years um, in an admin job in the NHS. Uh, I also have worked for engineering firms in administrative jobs and accounts jobs. And I started off working in mortgages um, when I first left school and sort of worked my way up to being the head of the department. And that was sort of my claim to fame then. I was their youngest ever head of department, but then I left. So, um, so yeah, I've, I've done proper jobs and all kinds of 
odds and ends of jobs and but I always wanted to actually be a writer and I, I had this thing that my writing was actually sort of almost a secret device and hardly anybody knew that I wrote and I kind of got this thing that until I was actually published I wasn't ever going to call myself a writer which is probably a bit pretentious really um, and I, I didn't so when I eventually got this this contract um, my book was going to come out Lots of people were kind of really surprised, and it was kind of, oh, we always wondered why you were never available and what you were always doing and why you always seemed to be off in a little world of your own. So, yeah, I was a sort of bit of a secret writer, really. But ever since then, I've been boring everybody with the fact that I'm a writer. So I, I've made up for it. Yeah. Good answer. Who's next? Um, virtually everything you, you said made me think that uh, the, the chief constable was probably right. Apart from um, this guy with the bowler hat, who was spotted some miles away or something, and uh, the uh, Scottish policeman who thought who caught the sex offender guy, who he thought might have been responsible, what was the reason why this Scottish policeman thought this sex offender might be might be responsible? Um, try sort of try not spoil it for people who are, who are going to read it. But essentially, the, the, the Scottish guy, whose name was George Maxwell, uh, has left the police. He's actually working on a farm. The brother of one of his fellow workers comes to stay. And brother is actually in the habit of jaunting round, um, scamming lifts off people. And he does wear a smart outfit, um, bowler hat, etc. Um, but he talks about women in a very peculiar way. Um, is clearly very keen on picking women up, but also doesn't respect them. Um, makes a comment that Evelyn Foster, sort of, George Maxwell has said to him, have you read about this terrible tragedy down in Otterburn? And this chap says, well, yes, and, you know, she got what she deserved and it wouldn't be too bad thing if a few more of them didn't as well, etc. So... These are kind of rather odd things to be saying, rather odd signals to be giving out. And this is what initially makes George Maxwell think there's something not quite right about this guy. Um, but he doesn't feel there's enough in it until he is actually picked up for a similar offence. I mean, clearly, I have got no way of knowing whether or not he's the man. And he may not be. Um, like you, I started off with a relatively open mind on this and I felt that in fact Evelyn might not have been telling the truth. People do do all sorts of peculiar things and if you did as a young woman set fire to your car with some really weird scheme in mind and it goes wrong you might actually tell lies about it in, in that rather sort of childlike way that sometimes when children have done something and they've broken the best tea set they will come up with some absolutely preposterous story about how an elf got in through the kitchen window and so on and so forth anything rather than actually admit that they smashed the tea set it was their fault so I did start off with an open mind but in fact when you piece together all of those various witnesses you can actually piece together people who saw either Evelyn, definitely Evelyn's car or a car very like it, all the way down that journey, you actually have that witness who sees a car turning round exactly where Evelyn says it turned round. Um, one of the things that I found compelling about that particular witness is that she never says 
it was definitely her car. I'm always very wary of witnesses who write themselves into the story and they're absolutely sure they've got all this misplaced confidence about what they saw. All she ever said, this witness, was that it was a car and she describes the car. Now, the place where that car turned is even today still a really remote place. No other car said they turned that night and nearly everybody who goes through, nearly all the vehicles are actually identified. So lots and lots of little compelling bits of evidence and as PC Eckford said, nothing which actually disproved anything that she said that night. The other things about it, um, most people do not commit suicide by setting fire to themselves because it's a particularly awful way of doing it. Um, where the car came off the road, to have driven it off would be suicidally stupid. Um, I, when I went up to Northumberland, I, I actually took lots of photographs, but it's almost impossible to capture how steeply the bank goes down at that point, because, of course, when your photographs are developed, it all just looks like fairly level grass. It's, it's hard to get that slope. But to have done that with yourself in a car, that, that would be suicidal in itself. And it's incredible that the car actually didn't overturn as it went down, for example. So there are lots and lots of reasons where, when you actually start to piece it together logically why what she says makes sense. Um, and the idea that you know she, d she did it on purpose doesn't really make sense at all. But, you know, you, you, you'd have to have a look yourself, and I, I'm quite happy for people to take the other view, because at the end of the day, I wasn't there, and I don't know any more than you. I can only present the evidence as I see it. So he must have set fire to the car, set it in motion, and jumped out of it? He or was, was he in the car? Do you think he was in the car as it was going along, it was on he fire? He wasn't what? necessarily in the car. There was always a spare can of petrol, no motorist who lived in rural England in 1931 went out without a spare can of petrol because garages tended to shut and often you went for miles and then you'd come a, a, to a village where about five petrol stations existed, not like today where it's gone back to you can go absolutely miles. Um, so you've got a luggage box. Evelyn is in the back seat of the car, according to her story. The man has assaulted her. He has got out onto the road he is literally standing next to where the petrol can is, so he can get the petrol can, he can throw the petrol into the seat on, onto her, lights his match, throws it in, <coughs> and then sends the car on its way. Three yeah. Though the car engine could have been idling. It would have picked up a lot of momentum as it went down, down the bank. And as soon as it reaches any sort of significant obstacle, it stops. Okay, moving on. It's a very good talk as well, I fully agree. My question is more about Fullerton Jones, was it? Um, James. Yeah, obviously he ruined, it would seem, this woman's life and whoever else was connected with it. Do you know if he did that regularly? Is he ruined lots of people's lives? And if so, is it really fair that he was allowed to retire quietly to, to um, Windsor? I know you said you despise him, 
I think that's good. And, and are you, have you made quite a fuss about that, or were you allowed to ease, just allowed to retire in peace? I just think it would be nice for people to realise that they're posthumously their reputation can be ruined if they do things like that. Do you know what I mean? Well, I'd like to think I'm doing my bit yeah, to ruin his reputation. Um, he, mercifully, there were actually relatively few um, big violent crimes in Northumberland. But Fullerton James actually has form with me from an earlier <laughs> crime because um, the first book I wrote, Edwardian Murder, again, the, mur the murder, one of the murders, takes place on his patch. And what we have in that murder is an identity parade where the witnesses are actually shown the suspect sitting in a room before he goes into a lineup. Um, this, this is a case which I'm sure many of you will know, which is the case of, of John Dickman, who was executed for, the, for the, the murder of John Nisbet. And when this comes out, because the witnesses actually talk to people about this, the Home Office start to correspond with, with Fullerton James. And again, it's all there on the file, though it wasn't out in the open at the time. And what's that saying? Matilda told such dreadful lies it made one gasp and stretch one's eyes. Fullerton James's sort of explanation of this, again, we're almost with the child who says, well, an elf climbed in through the kitchen window and did it. It's the most ridiculous correspondence coming from a, a, a grown man, but he would not at any stage accept responsibility. And this was an instance where actually he wasn't being asked to sort of accept personal responsibility because he wasn't on the premises at the time. He was simply being asked to concede that this had occurred in his police force, as it were, on his watch. And he wouldn't. He just, so again, he, he really, he'd got form where I was concerned. Um, but it, as I say, he was, you know, I, I don't claim to be the first person to have discovered that he was pretty rubbish. I mean, one or two... Um, chief constables round about this period were not fantastic and many of them of course like him hadn't got any training but I'd, I've never come across anybody who was quite as bad so far I'm still looking okay Bill right um, glad you mentioned Dickman because uh, I've also written a book on Dickman uh, don't worry if you never saw it nobody else did <laughs> is that the question <laughs> Any more back here? Lindsay? Yes, I thought perhaps. Have you got one? Yep. I, great, great talk, by the way. Um, I love the, the, the fact you said you got all the original documents from the police. How big was the amount of stuff they had? Was it like boxes and boxes? And what was your feeling when you actually got your hands on it? Um... To answer the last bit first, my hands were shaking. I was so excited because I really am that sad person who likes to get down and dirty with the old documents. Um, there were copious amounts. There were, I think, it was three boxes and they were the, the sort of traditional size. And, of course, a lot of it was flimsies and it had all been compressed. However, a lot of things were there in duplicate, triplicate, and nineplicate, you know. That, so there was, as there often is in, in, in files like this, lots and lots of repetition. And, of course, you have to go through all of it just in case it, it's not the same and there's something new, etc., etc. And one of the boxes was actually simply full of newspaper, old newspaper cuttings and things, um, which obviously was of less interest because I'd already got most of that anyway from from Colin Dale as it was then I mourn Colin Dale is anybody else sad that Colin Dale isn't there anymore oh absolutely um, yeah. yeah yeah we're all sad aren't we yes. I loved Colin Dale 
And also, they keep you up to date with sports scores as well, the guys on the desk. I mean, I thought that was, you know, there's not many record repositories do that. And I just <laughs> thought that was really good part of the service. Sorry, I've lost the thread there. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, there was a lot of information. It took a lot of... I, I, I kept going across for sort of two and three days at a time until I'd gone through it all. And, and also, because they don't do that very often at, at Police HQ, I'd been put in this little office which was temporarily not in use, except by me, and I suspect that almost everybody else who worked in the building at some time or other found some excuse to come in and look in this virtually empty cupboard. And they'd say things like, um, so, so are you the woman who's looking at the old fire? You know, as if I was, they obviously thought I was a bit of an eccentric, which, was, which is true. Um, so yeah, I, I became an object of interest as well to, the, to those at the HQ. Um, just before I ask my question, I was just wondering if you had, when you read Jonathan Goodman's book, obviously a lot of us here are quite interested in Jack the Ripper. Um, I just thought I'd tell the group the Ripper fact, which kind of links the two cases, is that the reverend in the village of where this crime took place in Otterburn was actually the, um, the nephew of Alfred Briley from the Maybrick case. So it was Reverend Briley. And uh, yeah, so he was the uncle of the, of the reverend. But my question was... Um, have you ever found a photograph of this horrible chief constable? Because I'd love to see what he looks like. Somebody has, a, a, somebody has now promised me that they have a photograph with him, with various other officers. But no, I've not actually located a photograph. And at one stage, um, Northumberland police said that, well, they're Northumbria police now. Um, they were Northumberland police then said, yes, we believe we have got a, a photograph of him somewhere. But I didn't, in the end, pursue that because as you're trying to get all your illustrations together, you realise you're only going to have a finite amount of space anyway. Um, but no, I've never actually seen what, what he looks like. Um, but I, I've, I'm expecting... There's lots of people um, who had dads and granddads who, who were in the, the Northumberland Police have got in touch since the book and one lady says that she has got um, this photograph and she's going to um, scan it and, and send it but she hasn't yet but I, I'm hoping to see what he looks like Oh, there's some more questions oh. I think he might have horns Adam, and a tail personally um, Forgive me if I've got this wrong the jury f or the whatever they were found that they believe they didn't believe that she'd killed herself. Why did they not believe it? Yet everybody else considered that she was not being truthful. The an inquest jury is always drawn from the immediate locality, and in a place like Otterburn, everybody knew everybody else. So, okay, in the immediate locality around here, the chances of, of getting even anybody on the jury who knew the victim would probably be fairly remote because it's a big area of population. In Otterburn, everybody knew everybody else and was related to everybody else and, and everything else. So you're dealing with a jury of men who all knew Evelyn and knew her family. So they knew what sort of person she was. And one of them, one of the jury actually was the Reverend Brearley. He was actually on the inquest jury. And... One of them, and it probably was Reverend Brealy, said afterwards, it doesn't matter what anybody says, no one will ever convince me that a good, honest girl like Evelyn would make up a story like that. The, the press, of course, really had to go at them because they said you're supposed to base your view not on your prejudice about 
the victim, but about what evidence you've heard at the inquest. But they didn't. They they based it on their knowledge of the the person, which which in a way again is, is actually dangerous. I mean, I I am inclined to agree with what the press said that you're supposed to find in accordance with the evidence, but that is clearly why they didn't. Um, if he, this is the 1930s we're talking about, so the photographs weren't that uncommon, especially if somebody, you know, high up in the society sort of thing. Do you think there's no photographs of him because the family don't want him to be made a public figure? He he was very much a public figure. I mean, nowadays. Um, though, oddly enough, whereas a lot of chief constables seem to sort of appear at the opening of an envelope and had their photographs regularly in the papers... Fullerton James doesn't seem to have gone in for that very much. Um, there is a picture of a sort of rear view of him inspecting the crime scene, but obviously that's not terribly helpful. But no, as, as regards his photographs, he doesn't seem to have been quite so keen on having his photograph taken and put in the paper, perhaps as, as some others were. OK, any more questions? Uh, another one? OK. Yeah, one of the things that you said, talking about the jury at the uh, the inquest, you sort of implied that they um, came to the, their verdict, or not verdict, their... Uh, yes, it is, it is their verdict. Yeah. All right, verdict. On the basis of local gossip that, that they had absorbed, which was disproved by the investigation. Um, I think that to an extent that is true. Because there were all these rumours running around that this person had seen a strange man and that person had and it had all been suppressed. And, of course, that gossip was ill-founded. Um, as I say, I, I am down the track that the, jury, the inquest jury should, in fact, have based their verdict on what they'd heard, the actual evidence. As it turns out, though, I feel they were doing the wrong thing, but actually it was the right thing because, of course, they hadn't been given all the evidence. So they, they were being asked to make up their minds on an incomplete picture because only the evidence which suited the idea that Evelyn was responsible herself ever came to the attention of the inquiry. So they knew nothing at all about, for example, George Jackson, the man at Bolan West Houses, who saw this suspicious man in, a, in a, what would really be a very strange place for him to be quite late at night in a very rural area. They were unaware, completely unaware of that because he wasn't, George Jackson isn't that local to them. Bowen West House is actually quite some distance away. So they would have known nothing about that. But to make a, a sensible verdict, they should have known about that. Similarly, they should have known about Bessie McDonnell seeing a car turn in Belsay. Again, Belsay is quite a long way away. And whether they'd heard any rumour of that or not, I, I don't know. But they probably didn't know that. So they were not getting all of the information. A bit of an irony. That if, if they'd found the verdict, which you think they probably should have found the verdict, this case wouldn't even be a controversy, would it? Ooh, I think it might still, because we cases do tend to carry on being controversial, even when a verdict... I mean, we were talking earlier on about... It. There's just been a programme about Ruth Ellis again on television. Well, you know, the, she incontrovertibly shot David Blakely and, and yeah. Blakey or Blakely and was found guilty, but there's still controversy. So I, I think this would still have been a strange one. I mean, one thing that I, I... One phrase I did like from Jonathan Gooden's book, he said this was not so much a who done it as a what was it. And I think people would still have argued about that.
I thought tonight was fantastic. I thought you give a great presentation. And as I said before, your research you know, with passion. Okay, she was great. Big round of applause, please. And that was Diane Janes at the April 2018 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. I'd like to thank Ms. Janes, Steve Ratty, Ruby Vitorino, Frog Moody, and all of the members of the Committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this excellent presentation possible. We are in the process of obtaining the slideshow that accompanied this talk, and when received, it will be available to download on this episode's podcast page so be sure to go back and check it out. If you'd like more information about the Whitechapel Society, to become a member, purchase books, subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal, or look at upcoming speakers and events, please visit whitechapelsociety.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian and Edwardian crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Facebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank all of you for listening, and we'll see you next time.